while traveling home from a job interview in California. Mark and Allie Thurston suffer a car accident in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. Allie, are you alright? After walking for miles to the nearest convenience store, they are greeted by Hap, the store owner, who invites them to stay the night in his home. Me and my son would be glad to have you. When the two announce their plans to stay in a nearby hotel and restaurant, the Old Tawan Buffet, Hap does his best to dissuade them, but when they insist, he leaves them with a strange warning. Don't eat the calamari. When the warning goes unheeded, Mark and Allie are plunged headlong into a cosmic nightmare. Mark! Mark! What's happening to me? Giants, frogmen, time travel, and interdimensional madness. Now you die, your alley dies, your old man dies, I find your home, all of your friends die. All of which concludes in a battle against an ancient evil. You will bow before the mighty Dion Dega. Together they must find a way to preserve their lives, their sanity, and perhaps even their world. Part love story and part comedy. Perfect for fans of Ghostbusters and Cloverfield, The Old Town Buffet by Wesley Critchfield is a deep dive into Lovecraftian horror that will keep you in suspense and make you want to come back for seconds. Great. I've woken up in the middle of a British Three Stooges routine. More like Gilbert and Sullivan, I should think. No, Monty Python's far more my speed. The Old Town Buffet, or Don't Eat the Calamari by Wesley Critchfield. Read it now on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Audiobook version coming soon at audible.com. ...den Richtlinien so vorgenommen worden sind, wie wir das für richtig halten. Das heißt... Hey, Billy, why do you look so down? Aw, oh, Dad, I got a computer, a PlayStation, and a barn full of iguanas, and I'm still bored. <sighs> Gee, Billy, when I was your age, I would read lots of stories in pulp magazines. Oh, with stories of weird adventure and fantasy, horror, satire, and lots of action. Wow, that sounds great, Dad. Yeah, I sure wish there was something like that right now. <laughs> there is Daddy-O! Who are you? I'm Dr. Mary Von Rocksprocket, host of the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour, and now there's... Yeah? Twisted Pulp Magazine! <laughs> What's that, Doctor? Why, it is a return to greatness! Available on all your digital devices! That is what it is! Look! Exciting and, dare I say it, very unwholesome. You definitely have that right, my good man. Ha <laughs> ha! Thanks, Dr. Mary. My pleasure, Billy. 
And just between you and me, I am not sure that this man is really your father. Bye! Dad? Uh, just read your Twisted Pulp magazine, Billy. Twisted Pulp magazine! Available in dark alleyways behind meth labs everywhere! Or at Amazon.com or ArchaicMedia.info That is A-R-C-H-A-I-C-M-E-D-I-A dot info! <laughs> this story was an episode of the TV show called Tales from the Dark Side. This story was also published in a book based on the show. Inside the Closet By Michael McDowell She'd been told the house was Victorian, and about two minutes from the campus. It was, however, at least a mile and a half from the campus, down a steep hill, across a picturesque iron bridge crossing an ugly trickle of water that was called the Alewife Brook, and finally up an even steeper hill. Furthermore, the house wasn't Victorian at all, but Edwardian. Built around 1914, Gilgast? Because her undergraduate thesis had been on the domestic architecture of Philadelphia, she was confident that she wasn't more than a year or two off. It was three stories high, but its wide windows and its horizontal planking, its lazy porches and its double doors made it look as if it had been squashed down from a house that was much more pleasantly vertical. It was surrounded by evergreen trees kind that grew slowly, grew tall, and provided the house not so much shade as black shadow all year round. The lot was large, fenced, with a prickly hawthorn hedge outside the fence. The house faced differently from its neighbors, fronting a dead-end lane of empty wooded lots. Gail wondered at her good fortune. The porch light was encased in an iron lantern Gail was certain was original to the house. She admired the stained glass that bordered the front door on either side, more richly secular colors than you'd find in a church, and new soldering showed her they'd been carefully reinforced. There was a bell, but Gail used the knocker instead. Brass in the form of a horned goat's head. The man who opened the door was tall, middle-aged, dour. I called, said Gail. Dr. Fenner? Miss Ainsley? He replied, confirming she'd gotten the right address. Gail, she said. He politely stepped aside, allowing Gail into the hallway. She went in cautiously and glanced around without moving her head. She didn't want to appear too curious. The woodwork was original. Mahogany, or perhaps even the more exotic gumwood. The wallpaper was an elegant wide-weave canvas, painted cream, the lighting fixtures tarnished brass with low-wattage bulbs. It was exactly the sort of low-key elegance Gail adored. 
or would have adored had it not been for the hangings on the walls. Mounted heads of small animals, small angry animals, tiny screaming primates, small snarling rodents, the long-haired gaping faces of unhappy mammals she couldn't give a name to. I'm told I have the last available space in town, said Dr. Fenner. The book Scale was carrying slipped out of her arms. Embarrassed, she knelt on the dark carpet, a faded, frayed, and exquisitely valuable Carcassian runner. I should have started looking earlier. The term begins next week. I'm a graduate student in the fine arts. I'm dean of the veterinary school, he replied, in frigid ambulominess. There's a reason the room hasn't been rented yet. Gail stood, her books and tablet gathered together. Since she started her studies in architecture, the history of design, and the development of domestic architecture, she'd always wanted to live in a house like this. Also, it happened that she was desperate for a place to live. She wondered what she could persuade Dr. Fenner to accept her as a tenant. I'm a strict landlord, said Dr. Fenner after a moment when she had said nothing. I do most of my work here at home. I write and teach and administrate, and I have to have quiet. So no stereos, no television, no boyfriends trooping through at all hours of the night. All I've got is my slide projector, returned Gail hesitantly, and I promise not to run it late. Thinner softened. No boyfriends? It's me and my books. Gail smiled. Bookcases I have, said Fenner. Third floor, all to yourself. Fenner led her up a thickly carpeted dark staircase, down a long unlighted corridor past wide doors with brass knobs, around an unexpected corner and up a narrow staircase that took another unexpected turn to a small triangular landing. Bath and kitchenette, said Fenner, thumbing through the old iron keys on the old iron ring. But basically illegal. Illegal? Gale echoed as he found the key and shoved it into the lock. The key turned easily. I'm not zoned for tenants, he replied as he pushed open the door. No exterior staircase, no fire escape. Oh, I don't smoke either, said Gale. Twenty-five off the rent. He turned on the light, stepped inside, making room for Gale. It was my daughter's room. The same dark wood. She still couldn't tell if it was mahogany or gumwood. Plaster walls painted a long, faded ochre. A long bank of square windows with faded white curtains. An unadorned ceiling that slanted here and there beneath the sharply pitched roof of the house. Simply and predictably furnished with a straight chair and a round tea table on a hooked rug. A narrow painted iron bed with a Chanel spread. A standing cedar wardrobe. Behind a green baize curtain were a tiny stove and a refrigerator with shelving above. A small bathroom with white porcelain fixtures and yellow tile. And in the wall, next to the bathroom, one more door. Obviously, the door of a closet. But perhaps not quite obviously, the door was not quite four feet high. It was smaller than any door she'd seen elsewhere in the house. But with the same panels, the same hinges, the same brass doorknob, the same keyhole. So, 
it had been built that way? Is that the closet? Gail asked. She knelt before the door like Alice at the door that led into the garden where the flowers were rude and sibylline. Finner stared at her. It was the closet, he replied coldly. But it's locked now, and I've lost the key. She tried the knob. The door was locked. That's why the standing wardrobe is in here. If you don't have enough room for your things, you can put them in one of the closets downstairs. So if you're- but why is the door so small? She asked, interrupting him. Finner didn't answer the question. He asked another in return. Do you want the room? Yes, she replied startled. Yes, of course I do. In the first floor entryway, Fenner stood still in silent listening. Nothing was to be heard, nothing from outside. Nothing from any of the rooms that opened off of the entryway. A living room he hadn't set foot into in 10 years, his study where he spent a third of his life. The kitchen he never cooked in, where the cabinets were padlocked. Silence from upstairs. His bedroom. A bath. Three more bedrooms filled with boxes and bottles and jars and bones and pelts and skulls and the severed hands of rare primates in which wire had been played through their fingers so the withered dead figures might still splay or fist. Nothing from the third floor where Miss Ainsley slept or where Miss Ainsley, if she was not yet asleep, crept about softly on her bare feet. Finner locked the front door and turned off the light. He gave a swift, hard kick to a box of belongings Miss Ainsley had left beneath the hall table and hoped he had broken something inside. Then he went upstairs. Gail went softly on her bare feet, folding and putting away the last of her clothes. She arranged things in the medicine chest in the bathroom placing a folded towel in the sink just in case she fumbled one of the glass bottles. Because she had a fear of electrical shortages, she placed her hair dryer, her electric curlers, her iron, her cup warmer, her contact lens cleaner, and her slide projector in the sturdiest of her cardboard carton and shoved it up beneath the bed. Well, away from any electrical outlet. Gail's fear of the dark, however, was greater than her fear of being burned in her sleep so she allowed herself the luxury of a nightlight. She plugged it into an outlet near the foot of the bed, then carefully pinned the corner of the Chanel away from its glowing shade. She brushed her hair, untied the ribbon at the neck of her nightgown, and climbed into bed. Gail shortly fell asleep, and sometime after that, dreamed she slept beneath a Chanel spread in an iron bed in a room with ochre walls and a closet door that was only four feet high. Dreamed that something crouched on the other side of that diminutive door and turned the brass knob this way and that, slowly, quietly, so that she, sleeping and dreaming, in the bed would not hear and awaken. Gail awakened and sat up in the bed so quickly the iron joints and the iron springs of the iron bed scraped and rocked and creaked. The knob of the closet gleamed faintly in the pink illumination of the nightlight. It was not turning at all. 
but Gail still thought there was something behind the closet door. Because she could hear its nails scrabbling against the wood. The scrabbling stopped. Because whatever was inside the closet knew she was awake. Fenner was buttoning his coat. Gail waited at the landing a moment, watching him, hoping he'd notice her before she had to speak. But if he noticed her, he did not acknowledge her presence. Dr. Fenner? She called at last. The way he looked up, the way he wrapped the scarf around his neck, convinced her he had known she was there. Yes? What is it? You forgot to give me keys. He took them from a basket on the hall table and tossed them up to her. They're labeled. He said. I had to get to my office. He started for the door. Uh, Dr. Fenner? She said in a tone of voice that meant to detain him. Yes? He replied in a voice meant to express his impatience at being detained. There was a rat in my room last night. A rat? He wasn't alarmed. In fact, he smiled, the superior sort of smile that professors employed to keep timid graduate students in their place. The only rats in this house are the ones I keep in formaldehyde. This one was alive. I heard it scrabbling around in the closet. It woke me up twice. Finner shoved several stamped envelopes into his pocket of his overcoat. There are no rats in this house, he said. Gail returned to her room to finish drying her hair and dress for the first class of her graduate career, but she couldn't help glancing at the closet. In daylight, its surprising smallness was no less disturbing than it had been the night before. She took the key from the lock of the hallway door and tried it in the closet door. It turned, but the door remained securely locked. Gail's emotions were contrary. She was disappointed that she didn't discover what was behind the door, and was just as pleased that she didn't find out. When she returned from classes that day, Gail brought in a sack of groceries, frozen dinners, cans of expensive soups, and cartons of mixed natural juices to stock her tiny kitchen. Then, from the bottom of the bag, she took a log of processed cheese and a mousetrap. She tasted the cheese, found it gratifyingly unpalpable, then baited the trap with it. She knelt on the floor before the closet door and gingerly prodded the trap toward it, as if fearful the mouse, the rat, the whatever, would pounce upon it suddenly. Nothing pounced. But when she stood, she brushed against the doorknob of the locked closet. The knob turned, and the closet door swung open. It hadn't been locked after all. She swallowed her surprise and peered into the darkness. The closet was dark and reassuringly empty. A few shelves on either side, a rack for clothes, some old hangers on the rack, and nothing else. Gail peered along the floorboards, looking for a ragged hole that a mouse or a rat or a squirrel might have gnawed through, but she saw none. She pushed the baited trap inside the closet and eased the door shut. The key from the hallway door she had tried that morning, still in the lock. 
She turned it, experimentally. Then she tried the knob. The door was locked again. Evidently, the key did work. Or at any rate, if it couldn't unlock the door, it could lock it. Gail forced herself to be satisfied. The closet was empty. The baited trap was inside the empty closet. Closet door was locked, and whatever might find its way inside there could not get out. As the sky blackened beyond the dense evergreens outside Gail's window, she heated her frozen dinner in her tiny oven. She listened for Dr. Fenner, but he did not come home. She went downstairs once, checked to make sure the outside doors were locked, peered out a few windows, and went back upstairs. She put out her dinner on a little round tea table, making sure the double thickness of a towel protected the cheap veneer, and ate it by the light of her slide projector. She had had her first class that morning in Renaissance painters of Northern Europe, and had already decided that her midterm paper would be Secular Symbolism in the Low Countries. She wasn't entirely sure what that was, but it was sort of the title that always garnered an A. In preparation for this work, she clicked slide to slide, studying details of Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights. Click. A gaunt woman in black was hatched from a broken egg. Click. A naked dwarf was prodded with a pitchfork toward a precipice over broken rocks. Click. A pair of adulterous lovers with milky skin and flaxen hair embraced naked in a cauldron of boiling oil. Snap! The trap sprung inside the locked closet. Gail turned off the projector. She pushed away the tray of her congealing defrosted dinner. She turned on the small lamp with the frilled shade that had belonged to Frenner's daughter. She went over and knelt before the closet door. She turned the key, then tried the knob. It was locked. She rattled the knob, turned the key, rattled the knob again, turned the key twice, beat upon the panels. The door would not open. She placed her ear on the panel to hear the whimpering of whatever creature had been caught in the trap. She heard nothing at all. Evidently, the thing that had been caught in the trap had died in it. Gail wanted to wait up for Fenner, but she had class at 8 the next morning. When he had not come home by 11 o'clock, she tried the closet door one more time, found it still locked, and went to bed. At the top of the house, the windows of her room were closed. She didn't hear the wind in the trees outside. She didn't hear the green boughs sliding along the roof above her head. She didn't hear Fenner when he quietly opened the door downstairs, slapped on the light in the entryway, and sliced open the mail with the sharp brass letter opener some student had given him many years before. She didn't hear when Fenner climbed the stairs to the second floor, Unlocked his bedroom door, went inside, and then turned the key once more, this time locking the door from within. She didn't hear when the knob of the small closet door in her room turned slowly. Didn't hear when the door swung slowly open, and didn't hear when... But she did hear it. She heard it all. Heard the wind in the trees outside the closed, locked windows heard the branches sighing against the roof, 
heard Finner into the house, heard the ripping of envelopes one after the other, and the impatient crumpling of stupid letters and advertisements, heard his steps upon the stairs, heard the key turning twice in the lock of his bedroom door, heard the creature in the closet as it slowly turned the knob and opened the door and hurtled across the floor. Heard its quick, shallow breath as it secreted itself nervously behind the chair near the window. In her dream, she heard its padded feet. She sat up in the iron bed, fully awake, and instantly whipped out the flashlight she always kept beneath her pillow. She flicked it on and shone it toward the closet. The door was open. She slid off the bed, knowing what she had to do and dreading it. She approached the closet and shone the light all around the walls, the narrow floorboards, the shallow shelving. It was as empty as it had been that morning. No creature was twisted and stiffened in a pool of dark congealed blood. In fact, the trap was gone as well. The slab of pine with the manufacturer's name in bleeding blue ink, the steel catch and hook, the foul cheese. Where's the trap? She said aloud to hear her voice. She slammed shut the closet door. She returned quickly to her bed, shut off the flashlight, and crammed it beneath the pillow again. She pulled the covers up to her neck, lying on her side. She stared out through the curtains and the closed windows and through the dense evergreens to a distant street light that wasn't nearly close enough, fell asleep, and dreamed. Dreamed she was still awake. Staring through the curtains and the closed windows and through the dense evergreens to the distant streetlight. Dreamed that another pair of eyes stared at the streetlight too. Large, round, wet, blinking eyes stared from beneath the bed. Gail dreamed she stayed awake all night, huddled beneath the covers, not daring to get out of bed dropped to her knees and peer beneath the bed of the creature that had taken refuge there. The creature that lived in the closet. If you still want a ride to campus, I'm leaving in two minutes, said Finner. She hurried around, clearing cup, saucer, plate, knife, and spoon. She hadn't slept properly. She had dreamed too much, and she was short with him. There was a rat in that closet. Finner looked at the closet, but said nothing. I managed to open it. How? The key to this door also fits the closet. I'll show you. She took the key from the hallway door, knelt before the closet door, and inserted it. The key didn't work. My daughter lost the key a long time ago. The door has not been opened in years. I got it open last night, Gail returned sharply. And I put a mousetrap inside, then I raised one brow. And what did you catch? Nothing. The trap disappeared. She started gathering her books. Finner glanced around the room. Do you think the rat appropriated it to his own uses? It must have moved the trap somewhere else. Gail noticed she had left her hair dryer on the chair. She put down her books, picked up the dryer, and neatly wrapped its cord. Maybe your rat was raised on rutabagas. Rutabagas? Rutabagas are brain food. Finner explained with deadpan seriousness. Rats may be smart enough to avoid a trap, but they're not smart enough to rearrange the furniture. Gail pulled the box of appliances from beneath the bed and put her hairdryer in it. 
She stood up and looked Fenner in the eye. What's on the other side of that closet? Attic space. But it's closed off. There's no way of getting to it. It could be fumigated, Gail suggests. Fenner checked his watch. I'm going to be late. He turned on his heel and started down the stairs. Gail hurriedly picked up her books and started out. As she was pulling the door shut behind her, she noticed she had forgotten to put her box of appliances back beneath the bed. It grated against her sense of order and neatness, but Fenner's tread down the stairs was quick and hurried, so she left it and pulled the door shut behind her. A moment later, she caught up to Fenner. A moment after that, he locked the front door behind them. A moment after that, Gail got into the front seat of Fenner's car and peered through the windshield up at the windows of her room. A moment after that, inside Gail's locked room, inside the locked house, the cardboard box of Gail's appliances was drawn slowly back beneath the bed where it belonged. No! said Gail, speaking aloud to the writer of the letter she just received addressed to Mr. and Mrs. G. Ainsley. I would not care to invest in Krugrens today. Thank you very much. All my assets are tied up in rutabagas. She tossed the letter into the trash and stacked her books neatly on the table. It had taken an investment firm located in Dover, Delaware, only three days both to find her in this new home and create an imaginary companion for her. She shook her head, wondering at the open closet door. In the three days since she heard the trap snap shut behind the door, she'd heard nothing else from inside the closet. She dreamed no dreams of something that hid behind the door she could not open. She smoothed the front of her dress and went over to the closet. She knelt before it and slowly pulled the door wide. The closet was filled with clothes. The rack sagged with the weight of dozens of dresses, a little girl's dresses. The crinoline skirts, puffed sleeves, ruffs, pleats, and swags. The shelves were jammed with neatly stacked cotton underwear, crisply folded blouses, and folded socks. The floor was lined with a dozen pair of tiny polished shoes. It was the wardrobe of a five-year-old girl, the way an obsessive mother would arrange it. But all the clothes were definitely out of the current fashion. They weren't even the fashion of the clothes Gail had worn as a child. They were the clothes Gail had seen in photos of her mother, who had been five in 1954. When Gail pushed aside the dresses to see if there was anything on the hooks on the back wall, she saw two large, round eyes staring coldly back at her. She startled and fell back. As she scrambled to her feet and flailed out to slam shut the closet door on whatever the creature was inside there, one of the staring pupils shifted so that the two eyes became quite comically crossed. Gail pushed the dresses even farther aside, revealing a china-headed doll lolling on a hook that snagged her pink pinafore. Gail laughed at her own fear, and placing her left hand on the floor of the closet for leverage, 
She reached deep into the closet to unsnag the doll and snap! That was the mousetrap, clapping shut on Gail's ring finger. She cried out in pain, stood up suddenly, and banged her head on the door lintel. Crying both for the pain in her fingers and on the crown of her head, she shook the trap loose and ran to the sink to run cold water over the throbbing joints. She fumbled with the faucet handle, then thrust her fingers beneath the cold water. At the same time, she rubbed the crown of her head, and at the same time as that, she looked back at the closet, wondering how the trap had been set again and how the closet door swung shut of its own accord. The water spilled from the faucet and swirled down the drain. Gail watched the closet door to see if it would open again and listened to hear if anything moved inside. She held her injured hand before her frightened face, gripping her swelling fingers tightly. Blood dripped slowly from her smashed nails onto her white canvas shoes. It was Margaret's room, replied Fenner, placing his hat on the rack just inside the front door. His scarf and overcoat followed. Why is she now? She spoke to him from the landing, hoping the psychological effect of her elevation would help the inquiry. Montpelier, Vermont. She has a boyfriend. I paid for four years of college and two years of graduate school. So now, of course, she's painting houses for a living. What about your wife? Asked Gail. A lump. A, a lump? In her breast. Explained Finner, slicing open the top envelope of the stack of his mail that had arrived earlier. Mastectomy. Another lump. A second mastectomy. I... Gail had started to protest that this wasn't what she was asking about at all. But Finner didn't choose to notice her embarrassed fumbling. Chemotherapy... Spleen, liver, death, and inheritance taxes. I can't get that closet door open, Gail said abruptly. Of course not. I told you that when you moved in. It was open this afternoon when I got home from school. Then it shut by itself and I can't get it open again. I tried a screwdriver. That's why I put the standing wardrobe in there, he said with caustic logic. He crumpled a letter and simply dropped it on the floor. So you wouldn't have to bother with that closet. There's something living inside that closet, Dr. Fenner. He did not answer. And as if Gail's difficulties with the closet were both trivial and boring, he began to read a printed article that had been sent to him in a large vanilla envelope. It had rained late in the afternoon, and hours later the evergreens in the yard still slowly dripped water onto the sodden ground. Gail lay beneath her covers, her face turned toward the wall. The covers were drawn up to her neck. Her breathing was slow and regular. Reach. Reach. Horny nails scratching fervently on wood. It was what Gail had been waiting for, for an hour now. Absolutely still beneath the covers, she sat up suddenly and straightened bed and flicked on the light, pointing it directly at the knob of the closet door. The brass gleamed as the knob was turned this way and that, turned by whatever was on the other side of that closet door. She turned off the flashlight, 
threw back the covers and slid quietly off the bed onto the floor. With the flashlight held so it wouldn't knock against the floor, Gail crawled across the darkened room towards the closet door. Click. The door was unlocked now. As she crawled closer, the door of the closet swung slowly open. The dresses, the neatly folded underwear and blouses, the polished shoes, all were gone again. Inside the closet was only blackness. She raised her flashlight, directed it into the interior of the closet, and then flicked it on. The creature writhed and squealed in the glare of the flashlight. Yellow and naked, it was scarcely two feet high, no larger than the china-headed doll that had so startled Gail that afternoon. Hairless, with bowed legs and flat feet with webbing between the toes, its arms were bony and short. The fingers, long with sharp, horny nails, it had large, wet eyes and no ears, and many small, yellow teeth. When it squealed, its anger was like that of Gail's younger brother when he was interrupted at play. The creature swiped the flashlight out of her hand. When Gail turned and fled, the creature leapt upon her back. Its webbed feet had claws too, for they tore through her nightgown and raked deep into her flesh. One of its hands caught her hair and the creature's strength was such that it tore that fistful of hair out of her scalp. When she started to scream, the creature clapped its other clawed hand across her face, dragging bloodily across cheek, lip, and gum. Gail stumbled against the cheap tea table that had belonged to Finner's daughter and fell to the floor. Her head cracked against the floorboards. The creature, who had leapt clear, lifted Gail's head and then knocked it twice more against the floor, even more sharply. Then, with one clawed hand entwined in her hair and the other nails dragging deeply and bloodily into her wrist, the creature pulled Gail into the closet and shut the door after them. I spoke to her briefly last night, yes. Finner admitted impatiently. He held the letter opener between the palms of his hands, slowly turning it point up and point down as he talked into the telephone cradled against his shoulder. No, I didn't see her this morning. He answered in the sort of patient voice that very clearly expressed impatience. Mrs. Ainsley, I rented your daughter a room in my house. I did not become her legal guardian. Miss Ainsley fretted on at length, and Fenner did not hear the door on the third floor landing, as it was softly opened, then softly closed again. Probably. She wasn't even awake when I left this morning, Fenner said. I have early office hours on Thursdays. Fenner stabbed the letter opener through the cover of one of Gail's art history books, which had been left on the hall table. His back was to the staircase and he did not hear the soft, bare tread on the thick stair carpet. No, I will not see if she has an appointment book, Mrs. Ainsley. I teach veterinary science, not espionage. I'm sure she'll call you when she settled in. He said hurriedly, interrupting another torrent of distress. Now you really must excuse me. I'm having root canal work done in half an hour. Goodbye. 
He hung up the telephone with a smile and and cried aloud at the pain in his leg. Something sharp had sheared through the cloth of his trousers and raked through his skin. Finner gazed down at the creature that was holding tightly to his leg. It peered coyly up at him. Oh, you bad, bad girl. Finner cried reprovingly. Do you know what kind of trouble you've gotten me into? The creature hung its head and chittered, a guilty sort of chitter. What am I going to do with you? Said Finner, softly shaking his head. The creature bowed its head between its bony yellow shoulders, then peered up pitifully at Finner. He grabbed up the creature, shook it with playful wrath, nuzzled its tiny head against his cheek, and laughed indulgently. What am I going to do with my naughty, naughty little girl? The creature chittered its happiest chitter, the happy sound of a loved, forgiven child. This story was narrated and voiced by Jackie Ayers and Jay Muzzy Jr.